Matthew 6.33, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. It's also in Luke. Seek, seek first the kingdom, and all, all these things will be added. Now, some people apply this to um, getting a lot of things from God. And of course, the point of it is we're not supposed to be seeking a lot of things. We're supposed to be seeking God's work, trusting God to take care of us. But let's just consider what all these things mean. Does it mean everything we want? We don't have to look back far in the context to see. If, if we look back in 631 and 32, uh, what do we seek the kingdom ahead of? Well, in verse 32 it says, Don't worry, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? Uh, well, going on to verse 32. Don't, uh, the, 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 the pagans run after all these things. They seek after all these things. Your Heavenly Father knows that you have need of them. Rather, you seek the kingdom, and God will take care of those things. What things? What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? He'll take care of our basic needs. He's not promising us great wealth or something like that. Another passage that uh, sometimes gets taken out of context and sometimes in the same circles is Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Some preachers on the radio who have influenced probably millions of people have quoted this as saying, well, it's now faith. If it's not now, it's not faith. To be real faith, it has to say, I believe you to give me this now. There are some problems with that. First of all, the English word now is not uh, an adjective describing faith. It's an adverb that would go with is. Secondly, it's not even the English word now. Uh, it's now is in now once upon a time kind of now. It's not the Greek word nun, which means now. It's the Greek word de, which means but or and. Well, these preachers who influenced millions of people didn't apparently bother to look it up in Greek first. And I won't say anything more about that. But context should have been sufficient to teach them what it really was talking about. In the context, the context goes like this. Chapter 10, verses 32 to 39. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light, after you had been enlightened, when you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering, and you were often persecuted, uh, you had your possessions taken away from you, but don't throw away your confidence because you will receive a reward for it. You need to persevere. And he quotes a text from Habakkuk. He says, my righteous one will live by faith. If they shrink back, I won't be pleased with them. But we're not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. We're the ones of those, those who believe and are saved. So he's talking about enduring for salvation. He's, he's not talking about faith to get this and faith to get that. He's talking about enduring faith. Uh, faith that perseveres despite obstacles. And that's also what we see as we go on in the following context in Hebrews 11. Abraham went out not knowing the place that he was supposed to go, just knowing that he ultimately he was looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. He confessed his faith. How? They confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth because they were looking for a better city. That wasn't something now. It was a future reward. 
and they were enduring in light of that future reward. Hebrews goes on to say that these people all died in faith. They didn't receive the things that were promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. Uh, he talks about Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau with regard to the future. Uh, Jacob blessed Joseph's sons. Uh, Moses refused the passing pleasures of sin for a season because he counted it greater to suffer with the people of God because of his hope, what? Of a future reward, the text says. He speaks of those who did receive miracles on their behalf uh, in the den of lions and so forth. Others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. And here he's giving, especially he gives Old Testament examples. He probably also gives some examples of Jewish martyrs from uh, the period right after that. And he speaks of, of how some faced jeers and flogging, were chained, imprisoned. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. According to a Jewish tradition, that was done for Isaiah. They were put to death by the sword. They, they were mistreated. They, they, they wandered in deserts and, and so forth in a world that wasn't worthy of them. They suffered these things in faith because they had a hope that they would receive a greater reward someday and that God had planned something better for us so that together with us they would be made perfect. The point isn't that people of faith can always take the answer now, that we can always get whatever we pray for now. The context then turns to the ultimate hero of the faith. There were no chapter breaks in the original. So the chapter immediately after chapter 11, if you're really good with math, is chapter 12 which goes on to talk about this great cloud of witnesses and, and uh, we should therefore run with perseverance the race set out before us. And therefore, let us set our eyes, fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and now he's sat down at the right hand of God. He's been enthroned at God's right hand, which is a point that um, the writer of Hebrews has been emphasizing ever since Hebrews chapter 1. So Jesus himself as the ultimate hero of the faith, the author and finisher of our faith, the author and perfecter of our faith, he endured in hope of future reward. And he has the reward. He suffered the cross and now he sat down at the right hand of God. And then Hebrews goes on to say, consider all these people who endured this opposition so that you won't grow weary and lose heart. For in your struggle against sin, you haven't yet resisted even to the point of the shedding of your blood. You haven't suffered the way they suffered, so don't complain, but take them as examples. He goes on to talk about the Lord's discipline in terms of the persecution that you face. So the point of all this put together would make it very clear what Hebrews 11.1 means in its context. Now that's not to say that there's never faith at the moment, that one is reaching out to God at the moment. I mean, you have the example of the, of the woman with the flow of blood in Mark chapter 5. You know, she's not supposed to be out in public touching people because anybody she touches, according to Leviticus 15, is unclean until evening. But here she is forcing her way through the crowd to, to get to Jesus. In a sense, we could call this scandalous faith. And then she touches Jesus' robe 
which technically would make him unclean until evening. And then Jesus turns and says, who touched me? And he doesn't mind being publicly identified with her and her uncleanness because he came to touch us, embrace us in our brokenness so that he could make us whole. That was scandalous faith. It was desperate faith. And her faith did take the faith at that moment. But that's not the kind of faith that Hebrews 11.1 is talking about. Hebrews 11.1 is talking about the faith that says, okay, I'm suffering. I don't, I, I'm not getting all the answers now, but I'm not letting go of God because I know that God is faithful. God deserves my trust no matter what my situation is. It's faith that endures to the end and says, God, no matter what, I believe you. <laughs>